This morning's scripture is going to be found in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You may be seated. Thank you, Russell. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Let's take a moment to ask God for his help as we look at his word together. Lord, we thank you for being here with us this morning. It is by your kindness and your grace that you have seen fit to not only be with us here this morning, but also to give us your spirit to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. And Lord, we just would ask for your grace and uh, kindness on those in our lives who are going through uh, difficulty. I think especially this morning uh, for Carol, Rear and Benjamin and Jacob and Travis and their whole family. God, we ask for comfort for them as they mourn uh, Rick coming home to you. And we uh, pray, God, you would give peace that only you can provide. God, we also pray for Lorraine. She's got uh, double infusions scheduled and uh, a series of infusions coming up. We're asking God that, number one, you would prevent any complications from arising, any infections or any of those sorts of things that can happen. But then also, Lord, that you, by your grace, might provide for extraordinarily effective results from this treatment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2. 6 through 8. I want to start with football. <laughs> There's an event, I think it was 2015 or 2016, I can't remember, it is now called by, dubbed this by the famous broadcaster Jim Nance, the miracle in Motown. Miracle in Motown. The Green Bay Packers were playing the Detroit Lions and Green Bay was losing and the final play of the game, depending on whether or not you are a Detroit fan or a Green Bay fan, uh, the ball carrier was tackled and uh, the result was time ran out of the game. However, a penalty was called, face masked. Yeah, probably it was somebody tackled Aaron Rodgers and he got a little dirty, so. <laughs> Personal foul, 15 yards. Now, the rules of the NFL is you can't end a game on a penalty. It's against the rules. So the Green Bay Packers get one last play. No time on the clock. The, the clock doesn't even run. The game is over when uh, the football play is concluded. They hike the ball, and uh, Aaron Rodgers scrambles around a bit, and then he throws what has become the longest Hail Mary pass in the history of the NFL. 61-yard Hail Mary pass. If you've seen it on the YouTubes, which you should, it nearly hit the ceiling of the Detroit Lions Stadium. That's how high he threw it. And it was caught by a tight end, which is funny because all of the receivers ran to the end zone. Do you know what a Hail Mary is? Of course, I was trying to think theologically. Somebody will have to email me this. <laughs> what is the Protestant version of the Hail Mary? Do we have... Do we have a Hail Mary? I mean, why do we have to be Catholic when we throw the ball really far? Anyway, 
Especially the day after Reformation, the Sunday after Reformation Day, we're making Catholic references. Anyway. So, 61 yards, he throws it really high into the air. All of the receivers are running down into the end zone. If you've seen it, you know what happened. Who catches it? The tight end. Why is that funny? Because it took the tight end about 20 minutes to get there. I mean, he shows up. Everybody's been down there for five minutes. The ball has been thrown so high, he picked up coffee on the way, catches it. 61-yard, Hail Mary pass, longest ever, game over, Green Bay wins. Right? Now, if you're a Detroit Lions fan, you say there was never should have been a play. There was no penalty. So that is a certain kind of glory, isn't there? I mean, look, we're still talking about it. And if you've seen it or we're watching the game, you remember, who, regardless, it was pretty incredible. Here's another kind of glory. We have a holiday coming up, Thanksgiving. Some of you will crack out, bring out, break out the cornhole set. And you're going to have your annual Thanksgiving family cornhole tournament. And somebody is going to walk away the champ. Now, there's a certain amount of glory that comes with that. And I expect when that person wins, their celebration will be similar to Aaron Rodgers' celebration when he made that Hail Mary pass. So these are two glories, aren't they? The glory of the single greatest Hail Mary pass in football history and the glory of champion of the Thanksgiving Cornhole Tournament. Two different kind of glories, but they are qualitatively different. If you film your Cornhole Tournament after Thanksgiving and post it on YouTube, nobody is going to watch that. <laughs> nobody. I mean, you could send it to me and I will politely say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take a look. I will never. <laughs> I, I just simply don't have time to watch the highlights of your Cornhole Tournament. However, Tens of millions of people have watched the, the, the miracle in Motown. So what we have is two kinds of glory. They both are glory. It's just they're qualitatively different from one another. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you're wondering where this is going, is talking about two glories. And they both are legitimate ways of having glory. And all he is arguing is... They're qualitatively different from one another. And his suggestion is going to be, choose the better one. Right? He's saying, since there are multiple ways to have glory, why wouldn't it seem fitting to choose the one that gains the most and the qualitatively better glory? So the title of the message today is, Wisdom Always Brings Glory. Because we're going to look at two kinds of wisdom. And two kinds of glory. And what kind of wisdom you have will determine what kind of glory you have. Verses 6 through 7. Wisdom always brings glory. God's wisdom brings God's glory. This is not complicated. You thought it was going to be complicated. It's not. We started with football, so you know it's not going to be complicated. God's wisdom brings God's glory. I want to try and help you understand how God's glory works because it's not normal. It's not the way we think about things. So think about really famous inventions or ideas. Uh, some of the top inventions in human history, number one is the light bulb. The invention of the light bulb fundamentally changed our economy and the way we work. We're no longer bound to the, uh, the sun being up to get work done. So the light bulb, the telephone was a, a, an invention that fundamentally changed how people communicate. The computer, specifically the, the microchip that allowed very large computations to be done in a very short period of time. 
Yeah, finally, one last invention that probably changed how people live is the airplane. The ability to travel long distances over a short period of time. But here's what I want you to think about all of those inventions. All of those inventions incurred within a context of something that was needed or wanted. So why would a person invent a light bulb? Because it's dark. They don't want it to be dark. And candles are expensive. Maybe there's a way to have light that's cheap and doesn't fill my house with smoke. Same thing with the computer or the telephone. It's in a context of something's going on and I would like it to be different. Most of these uh, started with somebody going, well, I wonder if. if. Since this is true, I wonder if I can make something that will counteract that. What's the difference with how God's ideas work? God's ideas occur outside of time and circumstances. His ideas aren't a response to anything or a reaction to anything. In fact, all of God's ideas are primarily and purely an expression of who he is. He is simply having, his ideas and his thoughts are just an expression of who he is. It's not who he is within, within time or he's, in a, he's got himself in a pickle and he has to figure out how, himself how to get out of it. That's not how God works. God's wisdom which here in, second, in 1 Corinthians is the message of the cross. God's wisdom, the message of the cross, is timeless. It is a plan that God has revealed over the course of all of human history in order to bring him glory. And he wants us to join his glory forever. So God's wisdom, which is the message of the cross, has been, has been communicated to us throughout all of human history. And it's for his glory and, and he wants us to participate in it. Let's look again at this wisdom and what the content of this wisdom is. Look at verse 6 of, uh, what are we in? 1 Corinthians 2. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So this is God's wisdom. And he is, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 30, you can just look back in your copy of the scripture. He says this, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So what is, what is the wisdom he is talking about? Christ Jesus who made forgiveness of sinners who believe in him. So this is God's wisdom. I don't know what kind of idea you were hoping for, but when Paul says God has wisdom, his wisdom is this. God sent Jesus to provide forgiveness for sinners who trust in him. That's God's wisdom. That's his, his plan. And in fact, this plan requires God to help us understand it. Look down at verse 10 of uh, 1 Corinthians 2. These things God has revealed to us, how? What's it say there? Through the Spirit. Why does the Spirit have to reveal this wisdom of God to us? Because we wouldn't get it otherwise. We wouldn't get it otherwise. So God's wisdom is not something that's going to come natural to us. And you're, you might be sitting here thinking, well, it came natural to me. I was sitting in church or I was listening to somebody talk about the Bible. I was listening to a radio program or I was at a crusade or a, a youth event and somebody got up and shared the gospel and say, oh, I got that. I ought to believe that. Anybody ever had that happen? Okay, we got one guy. I need... I think I need to change my message. This. I was hoping it was more of you than that. All right. And here's the thing. When that happened, 
you didn't get it. A supernatural thing occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit opened your eyes. You go, oh wait, I need that. That was not you. You were not smart enough for that. You were not insightful enough for that. You were not spiritually sensitive enough for that. You don't have the right upbringing. You don't have the right temperament. You don't have any of those things. What do you have in that moment where you say, wait, I need Jesus. What do you have? The Holy Spirit. That's what the, that's what the Bible is telling us here. These things, this wisdom of God is made known to you by the Holy Spirit. That's God's wisdom. And this wisdom is that Jesus is crucified. And what we're going to understand about this wisdom from God is it doesn't have anything in common with the wisdom of the world. It doesn't share anything in common with the wisdom of the world. So while this is wisdom from God and in the company of God's people and in the fellowship of, of Christ, this is wisdom that is beyond the ages. In the world, this is nonsense. Because this wisdom does not have anything in common with the world's wisdom. But the wisdom of God brings God's glory. Look at the next part of verse 6. Uh, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. It is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So God's wisdom doesn't come from this world. So God did not come to planet earth, examine the problems in the world, consult with some smart people or read through some literature to try to figure out a plan to fix the world. His wisdom isn't sourced in this world, isn't found in this world. Because how is the wisdom of this world described? He says this, the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age are what? What's it say? Doomed to pass away. The smartest people who have ever lived are either still alive or have already died. Right? But every, everything passes away over the course of time. Now, every generation that ever exists thinks they're the one that's going to last forever. And then every generation subsequently passes away. So the, the wisdom of God is not sourced in this world. But why? Because everything in this world is temporary. Everything in this world is temporary. Have you noticed how quickly things break? It's, it's unbelievable how quickly things wear out. I was just walking outside the other day and walked past one of the cars. And I said, man, I am certain we just bought those tires. Have you ever done that? And remember those tires because we're going to buy something else. And then a tire went flat and the, and the place wouldn't repair it because they were already too far gone. I tried to convince the guy, I think you can fix it because I'm cheap. I'm sorry. And he wouldn't fix it. So we had to replace the tires, which means we didn't buy something fun. Have you ever had that happen? I think everybody's done that from time to time. So for a while, you call the tires whatever the... Where, and I, I, I walked out the other side. I'm certain we just bought those tires. Those tires got to be... Now, they have no tread. That's a, this is not one of those things where we're wondering. So, I mean, that, and it's just unbelievable. What is happening? Is somebody drifting in our car? Like, somehow... The car wouldn't be able to drift. You wouldn't be able to get it to do that. So why in the world would God source his wisdom in a place where things break and wear out so quickly? What, that would be a total waste for him. That's not how God works. God's wisdom is eternal in its 
uh, in its nature. Look at the end of verse 7. We'll get to we'll go over this in a minute. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. When did God decide to send Jesus to die for us? Before there was anything. Really, really important for you to understand about how God's wisdom works. He didn't create the world. Eve ate the apple, shared a bit with Adam, and then God was in heaven. Oh, my lens, what do we do now? I, hadn't, I didn't see this coming. I had no idea. God was all of a sudden on his heels in reaction mode. Not what happened. That would be the wisdom of this world. Temporary. Useless. God's wisdom is wisdom that is from the ages. And it's sourced from himself. It's an expression of who he is. Before there was a sinner in existence, God wanted to express himself and bring glory to himself by saving sinners. That's what he wanted to do as, a, as an expression of, of who he is. And you, you may be sitting here saying, well, well, why in the world would God that bring God glory? That is what he is like. This is what he is... Uh, he is a redeeming God and he has always be been a redeeming God. He didn't become a redeeming God when sinners became. He was always that kind of God. Amen. So God's, God's wisdom is from all of time. Now at the risk of really putting you to sleep, I wanted to show you how this works. And if you really wanted a lot of detail on how this works, you could come out on Wednesday night because what I'm about to do in about five or 10 minutes or maybe an hour, I don't know how long it's going to take, is what we're doing Wednesday night. Wednesday night, we're uh, studying the entirety of the Old Testament from now until May. And we're looking at how the gospel is communicated in the Old Testament because that's what Jesus said. So I just picked... Uh, 17 or 18 different, not that many, just a couple. I want to show you a few of these. Genesis 3.15. Are you ready, Al? Buckle in. Genesis 3.15. God says this to Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring, depending on your translation, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. Depending on your translation, you may have, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So we call this really in many ways the first gospel. This is God saying in Genesis 3, to the serpent, who is who? Who is the serpent? Satan, there you go. And who was Eve's offspring? Jesus. And you wonder about that? Go read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. So what he is saying is an offspring is coming that will destroy the enemy. This is Genesis 3. What's the plan from the moment it got going? To redeem sinners. This has always been the plan. A man is going to come, God himself, who is going to crush the enemy. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This is a part of the Abrahamic covenant. God says this to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12. The book hasn't even started. 
I mean, you've all read Genesis 12. It's almost January. You're all going to read it again. You're going to start your Bible reading plan. You're going to get to Leviticus and stop. And we get it. I know how it goes. Maybe this year you'll make it to Numbers. Numbers got good stuff. Plow through. Genesis 12. The book hasn't even started. And he's saying, all the earth will be blessed through Abraham. What is the means by which God is going to bless all of the world through Abraham? By bringing the seed through Abraham. And Abraham's family then is the means by which redemption comes. The Messiah. This is the very beginning. This has always been the plan to redeem. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. This is Moses. Have you heard of him? Also known as Charlton Heston. <laughs> if you're not laughing, ask your grandma. She'll explain why that's funny. This is what Moses said. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for you a prophet like you from among your brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. So this is Moses. Before they've even got into the promised land, reminding the people of Israel, a prophet's coming. The prophet is coming. And in fact, when they go and talk to John the Baptist later, they're going to ask him, are you Elisha? Are you Elijah? Are you Bill? Are you Tom? Are you the prophet? Who are they asking? He's saying, are you the guy Moses talked about? And John the Baptist says, nope, not me. I'm the forerunner. So this is Moses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, the plan is not done yet. Getting into the promised land is not the whole plan. The plan is for the prophet to come. Because we still have to crush the head of that serpent. 2 Samuel 7. A promise of God to King David. Called the Davidic Covenant. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, you're going to die. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is he talking about Solomon? Kind of. Solomon builds the temple. Does Solomon's kingdom last forever? No. Why does Solomon's king, kingdom not last forever? He's dead. How do you have a kingdom that lasts forever? Have a king who's alive, who never dies. Or if he dies, he doesn't stay dead. This is the way you have a kingdom that lasts forever. So here we have in 2 Samuel 7, God telling King David, the goal is not you. You're just one more piece of the puzzle of this plan that has always been the plan. So God is slowly making known his plan of redemption. Isaiah chapter 9. We are almost done-ish. Isaiah chapter 9. Christmas. And you thought, well, I thought Christmas was in Matthew and Luke in the days of Quirinius. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. A government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and for how long? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Pay attention, very close. Listen. A child will be born. What does that mean? It's a human. He's born among women. He's born from a woman. And then he's going to have a government. And, and then there are phrases used there that describe him as God. So here we have in, in Isaiah chapter 9, a little bit more information about this plan of God from eternity past, which is uh, someone will crush his head, and yeah, David, you're going to have a long kingdom. And then all of a sudden in Isaiah, we say, wait a second, is God coming? Wait, is God himself going to come as a person, as a human? And what's the answer? Yes, of course he is. Wait a minute. This, God, this plan is crazy. Why would you do this? So why would God do that? Why would God have a plan where eternity passed, he decided to come as a human? The only reason God ever does anything, it's who he is. That's what he's like. Because all of his decisions, all of his decrees are merely an expression of who he is. He's never reacting, never responding, never trying to fix something. He's merely saying, I'm God and this is what I'm like. So I am God who comes to humans as a human to save them. But one other wrinkle to this, Isaiah 53. So I got to be honest, Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. It's only 12 verses, but they're really, really long verses. I was looking through this and I was trying to figure out a way to sum up for you Isaiah 53. There really isn't a way. Merle's shaking his head. Can't do it. So what am I going to do? Buckle in. Here we go. I'm going to read Isaiah 53. Worst things have happened to you. This is not that bad and hopefully you enjoy it. Isaiah 53. When was Isaiah written? Isaiah was around the time of, well, several kings. But he was, remember, he was around the time of Hezekiah. That's not a book of the Bible. It was a king. Five or six hundred years before Christ. This wasn't a week before Christ. This wasn't after Christ. This is five or six hundred years before Christ. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent so he opened not 
his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. It was a rich man in his death. Although we had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors this is God's plan from eternity past for himself to come and be destroyed for our sin for himself to come and suffer and to be pierced to be led like a lamb that was off to be sacrificed. This has been the plan since before creation. This is a plan that has been made known to us during all of human history. And this is a plan which you and I have the privilege of having seen through the testimony of our scripture. Jesus came and died fulfilling all that the scriptures said of him. Last ones. Psalm 16 verse 9. This one's a quick one. Isaiah 53 was the long one. The, Psalm 16 is where the New Testament authors, Peter and Paul and others, uh, draw our attention to be reminded that it was always the intention to resurrect the son of David. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what do we discover in our Old Testament? It has always been the plan of God to save sinners. It has always been the plan of God to save sinners by coming himself to be a sacrifice for sinners. It has always been the plan of God to save sinners by coming to be a sacrifice for sinners and to be raised from the dead. This has always been the plan. And God's plans always work. Did it work? Look at how much effort went into trying to stop Jesus from coming. How, how much effort? What did Egypt do when Israel started having lots of babies? Chuck them in the Nile. Why? Why would the, why would the devil want to chuck all the babies in the Nile? Who's going to kill the serpent? The seed. So what do you got to do? Wipe out the seed. Nice try. Here's another thing. Open your Old Testament, close your eyes, point at a page in the Bible, you're going to find a barren woman. Doesn't it seem like that? Like everybody's barren. Why? Because if women can't have babies, certainly what? The seed can't come. And God says what? Don't be ridiculous. I can have babies through barren women if I want. And they, and they do. This is God's, God's plan cannot be derailed. It simply cannot be 
derailed. This is the wisdom of God revealed over time. What God has decreed has been done and what his wisdom sees fit to do always is accomplished and the glory of God is most profoundly revealed in his plan to save sinners through his son Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. That's his greatest plan and it's been going on for all of eternity and it's not stopping now. That's the glory of God. God's wisdom brings glory. You want a piece of the action? Join him in his plan. Trust Jesus and tell others about Jesus. That is the way to, to have the greatest glory in all of eternity. That's the wisdom of God. The world thinks that's lame. We sort of think that's lame. But that's the glory of God. All right, God's wisdom stands in contrast to the wisdom of the world. Let's look at verse 8. Of, uh, what, what are we in? 1 Corinthians 2? We aren't going to be reading any more full chapters of your Older Testament in this section. So this, you're fine. The wisdom always brings glory. God's wisdom brings God's glory. Second, wisdom always brings glory. The world's wisdom brings the world's glory. I don't know if you know this. The world is temporary and the world is broken. We talked about one of the greatest inventions being the phone, the telephone, the iPhone, the Android phone, whatever it might be. I don't know what you're into. The Nokia 3160. I don't know if you have one of those. Play snake on it. So think of this device that is the phone. I mean, can you believe it? I was telling my kids this the other day and they always roll their eyes because you have kids. You know what this is like. I, used to, well, I went to school in Chicago. So I remember I got to call home every Friday for 30 minutes. That's it. Call home every Friday for 30 minutes. And I had a little card, I think for maybe AT&T. Remember that company? And you would call a 1-800 number, enter the code from your calling card. Has anybody done this? And you, you dial it in, and then you set a timer. Now, my family maybe is like your family. We're a little bit ding. Timer goes, okay, bye, I love you. I mean, we're done. There's no middle of the story. I don't care. Anyway, your grandma, nope, 30 minutes, click. Wonder what's going to happen. Guess we'll find out next Friday. <laughs> so you do this, right? Now, now I'm trying to explain to my kids the concept of long distance calling. That's not a thing. I'm trying to explain to my kids the fact that a house used to have a phone mounted to a wall. Like, why would you have that, right? Why would there be a phone mounted to a wall? So we have this incredible invention. We carry it around in our pockets and um, we use that. The average individual uses that four and a half to five hours a day. Four and a half to five hours per day. 50% of that, social media. For the older folks, that's your Facebook. For the younger folks, I don't know, because I'm old. TikTok, the gram, I don't know what it is. So somehow, we took the world's greatest invention, and we look at people's pictures for two and a half to three hours a day. <laughs> Think about this. It used to be your friends would call you up. Where there's no chance we're going to be done on time. Your friends would call you up. Hey, you want to come over for dinner Friday? Oh, yeah, it'd be awesome. I look forward to it. Okay, so you get over to the house, you open the door, and you walk in, and there is a projector with a circle on the top. <laughs> a slide projector. Do you remember that? And there's a sheet on the mantle, right? And you say, we just got back from Yellowstone. And we're going to look at the pictures from our trip to Yellowstone. 
and we have three canisters. <laughs> and they're stacked. And what do you, when you walked into that situation, what are you doing inside? You're dying inside. Because one picture of a great moose. Yeah, that's a great looking moose. 40 pictures of meese. It's... <laughs> So here's what's funny. We would go over, get a free meal, enjoy a, a bottle of wine or something, and we're going to sit and watch pictures, and we would hate it. And now we literally do that all day, every day. <laughs> we're scrolling through pictures of people in Yellowstone or wherever they might be. We're, now, the only difference is we don't do it with them. We do it on, on the slide. This is what's funny. So we took something that should be this device, that makes our lives easier and simpler and more efficient. And we've decided instead to allow it to be broken. That's what humans do with all the things. So I don't want you to feel bad about it. It's just what, that's what we do with all of the things. This is the world's wisdom. This is how the world's wisdom works. The things put in the hands of broken people always be used for broken purposes. That's just what happens. So if you want eternity kind of glory, you need to have God's wisdom. And wisdom in the world rejects God's wisdom. Instead, it settles for just merely the ideas of this age. And as a result, the ideas of the world can only bring glory for a very short period of time. And only for this world. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, that is God's glory. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age, Pilate and the religious leaders and others, they knew how the world worked. They knew how power works and influence and money. They know how the real world works. They looked at Jesus and imagined, can this person be made to be useful in the way we think the world works. Pilate looks at Jesus. Can he made to be made to be useful as a ruler of an area in Rome? The religious leaders look at Jesus. Can he be made to be useful to move forward the agenda of the Jewish people under Rome? Pilate and the religious leaders both looked at Jesus and said, this guy is not useful. He provides no benefit. The only way to extract any benefit out of this person is to kill him. That's the wisdom of this world. And if you were to merely look at the, the way in which those events unfolded in terms of a historical perspective, that was probably the right thing to do. Pilate prevented a riot in Palestine. Pilate also was able to create a new friendship with the king of the area, Herod. Now all of a sudden, he is creating political alliances that matter for the furtherance of, of, of his political agenda. The people of Israel also experienced a time of peace. It really was the zealots in AD 70 that resulted in a great invasion by Titus. So really, in, in terms of you want to look at, well, what's the right thing to do from a political and religious perspective? Yeah, certainly kill Jesus. Now, if you want to live forever forgiven of your sins... You should, you should not do that. You should recognize who he is. But the wisdom of this world results in only temporary glory. Glory that will only last the span of your days. So they crucified Christ. What we need to recognize is the glory that we seek is easily perceived in looking at the details of our life. 
It's easy, it's easy to perceive what, how we want to receive glory by simply looking at how we make decisions and how we use our time, how we use our resources and the kind of relationships and friendships that we have. We need to be asking ourselves, do we understand that God's wisdom is the best way to participate in glory, to participate with him in, in the plan of the ages? Or do we merely want to have the glory of this world? Why is this important to the city of Corinth? Here's the question for Corinth and maybe for you and I. The people in Corinth were believers, but they were starting to get really excited about this Greek intellectual philosophy. They called them the sophists, people who could speak really well. They had lots of really brilliant ideas. And so the people of Corinth were always looking for the next great teacher. That's why they're talking about Apollos and they're talking about Paul and Peter and Jesus and all these others. They want to just be attached to the newest and greatest and latest ideas. Paul's question to Corinth and to us is this. Since you have the Spirit, why are you now seeking the glory of this world? Since you have the Spirit who has opened your eyes to the glory of God that has been on the move since eternity past and will last into eternity future, why now are we seeking to merely have glory for the next 20 minutes, for the next 20 years, for the next 30 years? Why not seek to have your life hitched to the greatest of all things, the glory of God in Jesus Christ? A couple of things about the Lord and then we'll close. Number one, I don't know if you knew this or not, God is eternal. So you knew that, good. We're not breaking new ground. When you come to the Lord in prayer, when we think about God's wisdom, I just want you to think about how you seek the Lord in prayer. We, we pray for things, and, and we ought to. I hope you pray for all the things that are really driving you bonkers. We pray for things, and what are the time frame for most of the things we're praying for? They're relatively short. Like, say for example, let me just throw this out here, there for your consideration. Let's say you were dead. Would you need all of those things handled? Think of all the things you prayed for this week. Well, maybe for the people who come after you, right? Right, so... At the very least, we can say most of our prayer requests are confined to our existence. Okay? Now, we're going to God, and how long does God live? Always been? Always will be. One of the things I'm going to ask him, what did he do 10 billion years ago? I'm curious. I mean, did he have Yahtzee? I, don't, I have no idea. What's, what's he doing? He obviously has relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the things we must recognize when we come to God in prayer is we want, to, we want to connect ourselves with his view of how, how big things are. Like, remember, we're coming to God. God, I need this this week, and we should pray for that, but we should also recognize that God is looking at things over the course of the millennia. He is looking at our greatness. So sometimes God says, well, I'm not going to do that right now because I'm doing this way over here. And it's not just because I'm trying to be mean. It's because I have a bigger plan than you can see right now. And when we understand that's how God operates, it gives us the ability to just trust him. That he has a lot of things in mind. He knows exactly what he's doing. His plan always works precisely correctly. And we want to seek him in prayer, but we also want to rest in him knowing he's got a big plan going. And he's going to answer us in accordance with his eternal plan. God is eternal. and We need to remember that when we seek him in prayer. Secondly, God is focused. 
Have you ever been working on something really complicated and important and been interrupted? You enjoy that? Have you ever found that when you're working something and you're really like you're engaging both sides of the brain? I usually only use one side. The other one I have no use for. <laughs> you're focused and you're, and you're working and then somebody comes over and they ask you something. At first, of course I'm a guy. I don't know if it works for, different for women. They say something. I had no idea they spoke. <laughs> they, I have no idea they spoke. And then... And then the, the noise in the room keeps going. So you know something's happening outside of what you're working on. And, and you turn and look, and there's a, another human there, and their mouth is moving. <laughs> but your, your brain is still right here, locked in. Is this anybody? So their mouth is moving, and so what you've learned to do is like, mm. <laughs> you just kind of do that, right? <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. I'm spilling the beans here. <laughs> right. And then, and then we just go back to this, and, and two hours later we're going to be asked why we didn't whatever that was. And we, have, we, had, we just weren't there. We weren't, we just physically weren't there. And so, and, and, and then finally we're totally, we're really in, no, you got to stop what you're doing. We got to do this. We get irritated. No, I don't, you don't understand. I want to finish this before I, I do this. <clears throat> now, thankfully God has a lot more grace than we do. What has God been doing for, for eternity? What has God been doing for eternity? Saving sinners. I mean, like a tractor being locked on, a pit bull on a bone. I'm saving sinners. That's what he's been all about. I mean, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, I save sinners, I save sinners. So we need to understand what it's like. And I know I'm using a human illustration, but we're coming to him and we're saying, well, God, but I want to do this. And you, we must understand from our scripture, his filter for this, whatever that is for you, that deep-seated desire and interest, he is going to wonder, is that fitting into what I've been doing for all of eternity? It may not be a bad thing. It's just simply, this is what God has been doing. And everything he has been doing and everything he will be doing is rolling up into save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. And maybe that bothers us, that our thing isn't his thing. But what we want to allow the scripture to do is draw our hearts off of the things that we want for glory and instead hitch our ride to the king of glory. His glory is the biggest thing ever. Amen. So, what I'm, what's my challenge to you? Wisdom always brings glory. All I'm simply saying to you is seek the best glory. Seek glory. I do. I want this all. We're made in the image of God. Our job is to seek glory. Glory, all I'm simply asking you to consider is whether or not your life is seeking the best one. Because you're seeking it. Seeking it through your work, you're seeking it through your family, you're seeking it through your reputation, you're seeking it through activity, you're seeking it through leisure. There's lots of ways we seek to experience glory. The greatest glory of all time is the plan of God to save sinners. I want you to just simply take some time to consider, is your life being invested in the greatest of glories. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that you did not compromise when you came here to merely serve our purposes, but you, God, instead saw fit to bring yourself the most glory by dying for sinners like us. We are thankful, God, that you have brought forgiveness to people like us. God, we also have to agree 
that our lives, God, are a headlong pursuit of our own glories. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the ways that we can engage in the things of our life, our work and our family and our community, and, and God, have them participate in the glory of redemption. That we wouldn't seek the lesser things. And God, we thank you for your patience with us and your kindness to us, that you never leave us or forsake us, and you gently lead us along to be made into the image of your Son. And God, we just pray in this moment you would challenge our hearts to retune our priorities to the glory that never ends. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with the song?